This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book. And together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So, if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. This episode's conversation is about the novel Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. And I'm joined by our Novel Conversations readers, Katie Smith and Anthony Moramus. Katie, Anthony, welcome. Thanks, Frank. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to have you both here for this conversation. Before we get started, I want to give a quick introduction to this episode's novel. Jane Eyre is set during the early decades of 19th century England. All events are told from the point of view of our protagonist and narrator, Jane Eyre. Sometimes she narrates the events as she experienced them at the time, while at other times she focuses on her retrospective understanding of the events. Jane is an intelligent, honest, plain-featured young girl forced to contend with oppression, inequality, and hardship. Although she meets with a series of individuals who threaten her autonomy, Jane repeatedly succeeds at asserting herself and maintains her principles of justice, human dignity, and morality. Her strong belief in gender and social equality challenged the Victorian prejudices against women and the poor. So, Katie, how do we meet Jane, and what do we first learn about her? Well, the young Jane Eyre is sitting in the drawing room reading Buick's History of British Birds. Jane is a young orphan being raised by Mrs. Reed, her cruel aunt, at Gateshead, a home of the wealthy Reed family. Mrs. Reed has forbidden her niece to play with her cousins, Eliza, Georgiana, and the bullying John Reed. Anthony, John Reed, he's really a nasty kid, isn't he? A nasty boy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. John constantly teases and abuses Jane for being a lowly orphan who's only permitted to live with the Reeds because of her mother's charity. Well, one day John hurls a book at the young girl, pushing her to the end of her patience. And Jane finally erupts. The two cousins fight. And Jane's aunt, Mrs. Reed, holds Jane responsible for the whole scuffle and sends her to the Red Room as punishment. The Red Room? Yes, the Red Room. The blood red room. <laughs> the room in which Jane's Uncle Reed died. It's decorated all in red, and Jane tells us it's a blood red. Once locked in the room, Jane catches a glimpse of her ghastly figure in the mirror, and shocked by her own meager presence, she begins to reflect on the events that have led her to such a state. Yeah, she remembers her kind Uncle Reed, like polar opposite of Mrs. Reed, bringing her to Gateshead after the parent's death. And she recalls him dying and commanding his wife. The last promise he made was say, hey, raise Jane as one of your own. Suddenly, Jane is struck with the impression that her Uncle Reed's ghost is in the room. And she imagines that he has come to take revenge on his wife for breaking her promise. Jane cries out in terror, as one would if they saw a ghost of someone they were just thinking about. Especially a 10 or 11-year-old <laughs> young girl, right? Yeah, in the room where he passed away. So a lot to go on there. Her aunt believes that she is just trying to escape her punishment, and she ignores the pleas. And finally, Jane faints in exhaustion and fear. And then she wakes up to find herself in the care of a servant, Bessie, and the kindly apothecary, Mr. Lloyd. Katie, who is Bessie? Uh, Bessie Lee. Bessie is the maid at Gateshead. She is the only figure in Jane's whole childhood who regularly treats her with some sort of kindness. 
She tells her stories and sings songs to her. Bessie expresses disapproval of the mistress's treatment of Jane. Jane remains in bed the following day, and Bessie sings her a song. Bessie later marries Robert Levin, the Reed's coachman. And the apothecary, Anthony? Yeah, Mr. Lloyd, he's, he's the Reed's I know, personal apothecary, however that yeah, I'm, worked I'm, at the time. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody had their own. But uh, later in the story, he writes a letter confirming Jane's story about her childhood and clears Jane's name. So it's important to remember he comes up again later. But uh, Mrs. Reed's charged that she's a liar. He clears her of that. He's actually the one that suggests to Mrs. Reed that Jane be sent away to school and to Jane's delight. Mrs. Reed reluctantly concurs. And Jane soon learns some of her history when she overhears a conversation between Bessie and Miss Abbott. Katie, what do we learn? We learn that Jane's mother was a member of a wealthy family, the Reed family, who strongly disapproved of Jane's father, an impoverished clergyman. When they married, Jane's wealthy maternal grandfather wrote his daughter out of his will. Not long after Jane was born, though, Jane's parents both died from typhus, which Jane's father contracted while caring for the poor. All right, Anthony, move us along a little. So about two months have passed, and Jane has been enduring even crueler treatment from her aunt and cousins while anxiously waiting for the arrangements to be made for her to go off to Lowood School. Jane is finally told she may attend, and it's a girls' school, and she's introduced to Mr. Brocklehurst, the stern-faced man who runs the school. Katie, tell us about Mr., or maybe I think I should be saying Preacher Brocklehurst. Well, whichever it is, he was a cruel, hypocritical master of the Lowood School. Mr. Brocklehurst preaches a doctrine of privation, but at the same time, he was stealing from the school to support his own luxurious lifestyle. So Mr. Brocklehurst, yeah, he he abrasively questions Jane about religion right off the bat, as soon as he shows up. And he reacts with indignation when she declares that she finds the Psalms uninteresting. (laughs) It really rubs him wrong, as you might imagine. It does. Jane's aunt warns Mr. Brocklehurst that the girl also has a propensity for lying, a piece of information that Mr. Brocklehurst says he intends to publicize to Jane's teachers upon her arrival, really really setting her up for a good first day of school. And just as she did with her cousin John Reed, when Mr. Brocklehurst leaves, Jane is so hurt by her aunt's accusations that she cannot stop herself from lashing out and defending herself to her aunt. As it says in the book, as Jane says, speak, I must. I had been trodden on severely in most turn, but how? What strength had I to dart retaliation at my antagonist? I gathered my energies and launched them at her, at her in a blunt sentence. I am not deceitful. If I were, I should say I loved you, but I declare I do not love you. I dislike you the worst of anybody in the world except for John Reed. But Anthony, four days after meeting Mr. Brocklehurst, Jane boards the 6 a.m. coach and travels alone to Lowood. Anthony, tell us a little bit about Lowood School. Sure. And this is just one of those classic openings, the, the, the dread that comes through. It's a dark day. It's rainy. And she's led through a, through a grim building that will be her new home. Great. And Anthony, let me interrupt you there. Yeah. Uh, as we read through this book, Charlotte Bronte uses weather as a character oh, yeah. often. And we know when it rains, it's it's not a good thing, right? It's not going to be a good thing. But anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, that's okay, because I'm glad you said that. I, I was thinking at some point here to say, too, that there's so many things that are almost, we think of cliche, until you remember when this came out. And you go, oh, no, she established it. Like, this is such a good device. Great point. The following day, Jane's introduced to her classmates and learns the daily routine, which keeps the girls occupied from before dawn until after dinner. Miss Temple, the superintendent of the school, she's very kind. And while one of Jane's teachers, Miss Scatcherd, is unpleasant, 
particularly in her harsh treatment of a young student named Helen Burns. Katie, tell me about Helen Burns. Helen Burns is a young, sickly girl. She becomes Jane's close friend at school. She endures her miserable life there with a passive dignity that Jane can't understand. She's drawn to it. Jane learns from Helen that Lowood is a charity school maintained for female orphans, which means that the Reeds have paid nothing to put her there. She also learns that Mr. Brocklehurst oversees every aspect of its operation. Even Miss Temple must answer to him. Anthony, go ahead and tell us a little bit more about Lowood, if you would. Yeah, yeah, sure. The, uh, the second morning that she's at Lowood, the girls are unable to wash. Is the water in their pitchers? Frozen. It is mm-hmm. January. Jane quickly learns that life at the school is harsh. The girls are underfed, overworked in their classes, and forced to sit still during seemingly endless sermons. Still, though, she takes comfort in her new friendship with Helen, who impresses Jane with her expansive knowledge and her ability to patiently endure even the cruelest treatment from Miss Scratchard. For most of Jane's first month at Lowood, Mr. Brockerhurst spends his time away from the school. But when he returns, Jane becomes quite nervous because she remembers his promise to her aunt to warn the school about Jane's supposed habit of lying. Yeah, when Jane inadvertently drops her slate in Mr. Brocklehurst's presence, that does it. He's Boy. furious, tells her she's careless. He orders Jane to stand on a stool while he tells the school that she is a liar and he forbids the other students to speak to her for the rest of the day. But Helen makes Jane's day of humiliation endurable by providing her friend with silent consolation. She covertly smiles at Jane every time she passes by. But Jane is deeply ashamed. She's certain that her reputation at Lowood has been ruined. But Helen assures her that most of the girls feel more pity for Jane than revulsion at her alleged deceitfulness. Jane tells Miss Temple that she is not a liar and relates the story of her tormented childhood at Gateshead. Miss Temple seems to believe Jane and writes to Mr. Lloyd, remember we said that, Mr. Lloyd the apothecary, requesting confirmation of Jane's account of events. Miss Temple offers Jane and Helen tea and seed cake, quite a treat compared to what they normally have to eat. <laughs> gruel, yeah, essentially. <laughs> but, but like the good gruel. Uh, endearing herself even further to Jane. And when Mr. Lloyd's letter arrives to corroborate Jane's story, Miss Temple publicly declares Jane to be innocent. Relieved and contented, Jane devotes herself to her studies. She excels at drawing, and she makes progress in French. And as the seasons change and spring comes, life at Lowood briefly seems happier. But the damp forest dell in which the school resides is a breeding ground for typhus. And in the warm temperatures, more than half the girls fall ill with the disease. Some even die. Jane remains healthy, though, and she spends her time playing outdoors with her new friend, Marianne Wilson. Helen is sick but not with typhus. Jane learns the horrific news that her friend is dying of consumption. One evening, Jane sneaks into Miss Temple's room to see Helen one last time. Helen promises Jane that she feels little pain and is happy to be leaving the world suffering behind. Jane takes Helen into her arms and the girls fall asleep. During the night, Helen dies. In a moment, the foreshadowing by Charlotte Bronte is, we are told that Helen's grave is originally unmarked, But 15 years after her death, a gray marble tablet is placed over the spot, presumably by Jane, bearing the single word resurgum, Latin for, I shall rise again. And Katie, back at Lowood? Well, when Mr. Brocklehurst's negligent treatment of the girls at Lowood is found to be one of the causes of the typhus epidemic, a new group of overseers is brought in to run the school. Conditions improve dramatically for the young girls. And Jane excels in her studies for the next six years. It sort of jumps ahead. It does. After spending two more years at Lowood as a teacher, 
Jane decides she's ready for a change. She advertises in search of a, a post as a governess and accepts a position at a manor called Thornfield Hall. But before leaving, Jane receives a visit from Bessie, her old nurse from Gateshead, who tells her that the happenings at Gateshead since Jane departed eight years ago for Lowood. Georgiana attempted to run away in secret with a man named Lord Edwin Vere, but Eliza foiled the plan by revealing it to Mrs. Reed, their mother. John, the son, has fallen into a life of debauchery and disillusion. Bessie also tells Jane that her father's brother, her uncle John Eyre, appeared at Gateshead seven years ago looking for Jane. That's like right after she left. He did not have the time to travel to Lowood and went away to Madeira, a Portuguese island west of Morocco, in search of wealth. Jane and Bessie part ways, Bessie returning to Gateshead, and Jane leaving for her new life at Thornfield. All right, with that start, let's take a break here, and when we come back, we'll journey with Jane Eyre to Thornfield Hall, where she will start a new life as a hired governess. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back. Okay, when we took our break, Jane had left uh, Lowood School, where she had spent six years as a student and two years as a teacher. She's now found a governess position at Thornfield Hall. Katie, tell us a little bit about Thornfield Hall. When she finally arrives at Thornfield, it's nighttime. Although she cannot distinguish much of the house's facade from among the shadows, she finds the interior to be cozy and agreeable. She meets Mrs. Fairfax, a prim, elderly woman. It turns out that Mrs. Fairfax is not, as Jane had assumed from their correspondence, the owner of Thornfield, but rather the housekeeper. Thornfield's owner, Mr. Rochester, travels regularly and leaves much of the manor's management to Mrs. Fairfax. Jane learns that she will be tutoring Adele, an eight-year-old French girl, whose mother was a singer and dancer. Mrs. Fairfax also tells Jane about Rochester, saying that he's not an eccentric man... But his family has a history of extreme and violent behavior. And as they're having this conversation, suddenly Jane hears a peal of strange, eerie laughter echoing through the house. And Mrs. Fairfax summons someone named Grace, whom she orders to make less noise and to, quote, remember directions. When Grace leaves, Mrs. Fairfax explains that she's a rather unbalanced and unpredictable seamstress who works in the house. Despite that oddity, Jane finds life at Thornfield pleasant, comfortable. Adele proves to be exuberant and intelligent, and though spoiled and at times a bit petulant. But while content, Jane is frequently restless and works to collect her thoughts while pacing Thornfield's top story passageway or taking walks along the local roads. One evening, a few months after arriving at Thornfield, Jane is walking along, watching the moon rise, when she perceives a horse approaching. It calls to her mind the story Bessie once told her of a spirit called a guy trash, which disguises itself as a mule or a dog or a horse to frighten belated travelers. <laughs> and surprisingly enough, a dog then appears. But once she realizes that the horse has a rider, the uncanny moment uh, ceases and passes. And just after the horse passes her, it slips 
on a patch of ice, and its rider tumbles to the ground. Jane helps the man rise to his feet and introduces herself to him. She observes that he has a, a dark face, stern features, and a heavy brow. He is not quite middle-aged. He quickly, but carefully, remounts and rides off. Upon re-entering Thornfield, Jane goes to Mrs. Fairfax's room and sees that same dog, named Pilot, resting on the rug. A servant answers Jane's queries, explaining that the dog belongs to Mr. Rochester, who has just returned home with a sprained ankle, having fallen from his horse. Mm -hmm. So we finally meet Mr. Rochester, the owner of Thornfield Hall. The day following his arrival, Mr. Rochester invites Jane and Adele to have tea with him. He is abrupt and rather cold towards both of them. And Jane learns a little more about Rochester from Mrs. Fairfax. Rochester was something of a family outcast, and when his father died, his older brother inherited Thornfield. And then, after the death of his brother, Rochester inherited Thornfield and has been the proprietor for nine years. Jane sees little of Rochester during his first days at Thornfield. One night, however, in his, quote, after-dinner mood, as they say, <laughs> Rochester sends for Jane and Adele. He gives Adele the present she has been anxiously awaiting from his travels, and while Adele plays, Rochester is uncharacteristically chatty with Jane. Now, Anthony, after-dinner mood? Does that mean he was drunk? Well, Jane thinks so, and as a reader, yeah, we're pretty much meant to think that. When Rochester asks Jane whether she thinks him handsome, she answers, no, without thinking. And from Rochester's reaction, Jane concludes that, yeah, he's slightly drunk. Rochester's command that she converse with him makes Jane feel understandably awkward, especially when conversation turns to the concept of sin, forgiveness, and redemption. When Adele mentions her mother, Jane is intrigued, and Rochester promises to explain more about the situation on a future occasion. Which, Katie, he soon does. He does. Sometime later, Rochester fulfills that promise to tell her about his and Adele's past. He had a long affair with Adele's mother, a French singer and dancer named Céline Varennes. When he discovered that Céline was engaged in relations to another man, Rochester ended the relationship. Rochester has always denied Céline's claim that Adele is his daughter, noting that the child looks utterly unlike him. Even so, when Céline abandoned her daughter, Rochester brought Adele to England so that she might be properly cared for. And that night, Jane hears what sound like fingers brushing against the walls, and again that eerie laugh soon emanates from the hallway. She hears a door opening and runs out of her room to see smoke coming from Rochester's door. Katie just for real cringed even hearing the, the description there. You did. You can't hear that on the tape. Jane dashes into his room and finds his bed curtains ablaze. She douses the bed with water, saving Rochester's life. Yeah, but strangely, Rochester's reaction is to visit the third floor of the house. When he returns, he says mysteriously, I have found it all out. It is just as I thought. He inquires whether Jane has ever heard that eerie laugh before, and she answers that she has heard Grace Poole laugh in the same way. Ah, just so, Grace Poole. You've guessed it, Rochester says. He thanks Jane for saving his life and cautions her to tell no one about the details of the night's events. The next morning, Jane is shocked to learn that the near tragedy of the night before has caused no scandal. The servants believe Rochester to have fallen asleep with a lit candle by his bed, and even Grace Poole shows no signs of guilt or remorse. Jane cannot imagine why an attempted murderer is allowed to continue working at Thornfield. Heavy accusation. 
As the time passes, she realizes that she is beginning to have feelings for Rochester and is disappointed to hear that he'll be away from Thornfield for several days. Uh, Anthony, disappointed he will be away or disappointed to hear he's going to a party? Well, he does leave to attend a party where he will be in the company of Blanche Ingram, a beautiful lady. Jane scolds herself for being disappointed by the news, and she resolves to restrain those flights of imaginative fancy. Anthony, anything we know or think we know about Blanche Ingram? Well, we come to know that Blanche Ingram is a beautiful socialite who despises Jane and hopes to marry Rochester for his money. And a week later, Mrs. Fairfax receives word that Rochester will return in three days with a large group of guests. And while she waits, Jane continues to be amazed by the apparently normal relations the strange, self-isolated Grace Poole enjoys with the rest of the staff. Jane also overhears a conversation in which a few of the servants discuss Grace's high pay, and Jane is certain she doesn't know the entire truth about Grace Poole's role at Thornfield Hall. Rochester arrives at last, accompanied by a party of elegant and aristocratic guests. Jane is forced to join the group, but spends the evening watching them from the window seat. Blanche Ingram and her mother are among the party members. They treat Jane with disdain and cruelty. When Jane tries to leave the party, Rochester stops her. He grudgingly allows her to go when he sees the tears starting to well up in her eyes. He informs her that she must come into the drawing room every evening during his guest's stay at Thornfield. And then Rochester makes a slip of his words. Yeah, yeah. He says uh, they start to part. Rochester nearly lets slip more than he intends. Good night, my, he says, before biting his lip. All right, well, my what? Uh, my dear, my darling. It was, it right, Katie, to... fill in a word. My sweetheart, my love. Yeah, mm-hmm. my love is where I was, I was mm. figuring. Part of it. When I read it the first time, which was when I was in ninth grade or something, I thought it was because there was the rest of the party calls them my pet, my dove, my sweetness, Mm. my only the whole time. So I don't know. I thought it was just part of that. But now that I'm more mature, I. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Especially maybe after he sees her crying, that's like this moment of empathy and he lets his guard down. Well, and as we come to learn a little later, presumably he's already made a decision as far as Blanche versus sure. Jane. Now, now we're, none of us know that for a while, but maybe he knows that. Uh, all right, Anthony, the guests stay? The guests stay at Thornfield for several days. From watching their interactions, Jane believes that Rochester and Blanche will be married soon, though they do not seem to love one another. Jane is convinced that Blanche would be marrying Rochester for his wealth, and he for her beauty and her social position. One day, a strange man named Mr. Richard Mason arrives at Thornfield. Jane dislikes him at once because of his vacant eyes and his slowness. When Rochester learns that Mr. Mason has arrived, he looks uneasy and he grabs Jane's arm for balance. The same night, Jane is startled by a sudden cry for help. She hurries into the hallway where Rochester assures everyone that a servant has merely had a nightmare. And after everyone returns to bed, Rochester knocks on Jane's door. He tells her that he can use her help and asks whether she's afraid of blood. He leads her to the third story of the house and shows her Mr. Mason, who has been bitten and perhaps stabbed in the arm. Rochester asks Jane to staunch the wound and then leaves, ordering Mason and Jane not to speak to each other. Rochester returns with a surgeon, and as the men tend to Mason's wounds, Rochester sends Jane to find a potion downstairs in his room. He gives some of the potion to Mason, saying that it will give him some heart for an hour or so. 
Anthony, the shocks continue for Jane. Mm-hmm. Jane soon learns that her cousin, John Reed, has committed suicide and that her aunt, Mrs. Reed, has suffered a stroke, is nearing death. Jane goes to Gateshead, where she tries to patch things up with Mrs. Reed, but the old woman is still full of hostility towards her late husband's favorite. And Katie, more shocks. Yes, Mrs. Reed gives Jane a letter from her father's brother named John Eyre. He declares that he wishes to adopt Jane and bequeath her his fortune. The letter is three years old. Out of malice, Mrs. Reed didn't forward it to Jane when she received it. In spite of her aunt's behavior, Jane tries once more to smooth relations with the dying woman. But Mrs. Reed refuses, and at midnight, she dies. As Jane travels back to Thornfield, uh, she anxiously anticipates seeing Rochester again, and yet she worries about what will become of her after his marriage to Blanche Ingram. To her surprise, as she walks from the station at Millcote, Jane encounters Rochester. After a few words together, Jane surprises herself by expressing the happiness she feels in Rochester's presence. She says, I'm strangely glad to get back to you again, and wherever you are is my home, my only home. And then back at the manor, Mrs. Fairfax, Adele, and the servants greet Jane warmly. Things are looking up for Jane, uh, I guess for now, maybe. After a blissful two weeks, Jane encounters Rochester in the gardens. He invites her to walk with him. Rochester confides that he has finally decided to marry Blanche Ingram and tells Jane that he knows of an available governess position in Ireland that she could take. Jane expresses her distress at the great distance that separates Ireland from Thornfield Hall. The two seat themselves on a bench at the foot of the chestnut tree and overcome, Jane soon confesses her love to Rochester and, to her surprise, he asks her to be his wife. Wait, what? (laughs) 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 I guess I didn't see that coming. What? She suspects that he is teasing her, but he convinces her otherwise and admitting that he only brought up marrying Blanche in order to arouse Jane's jealousy. I guess it worked. Convinced and elated, Jane accepts his proposal. A storm breaks, and the newly engaged couple hurries indoors through the rain. But that night, during the storm, a bolt of lightning splits that same chestnut tree under which Rochester and Jane had been sitting that evening. That can't be good. There's the weather again, like you were saying. Well, she has a premonition. She says, hey, hmm, this wedding will not happen. And she decides to write her uncle, John Eyre, who's in Madeira. Jane reasons that if John Eyre were to make her his heir, her inheritance might put her on more equal footing with Rochester, which would make her feel less uncomfortable about the marriage. And more premonitions. Yes. The night before their wedding, Jane is aroused from her sleep, and she perceives a form rustling in her closet. It turned out to be a strange, savage-looking woman who took Jane's veil and tore it in two. Rochester tells her that the woman must have been Grace Poole and that what she experienced was really a half-dream, half-reality. He tells her that he will give her a full explanation of the events of that night after they've been married for one year and one day. Now I'm getting premonitions. (laughs) (laughs) On their wedding day, Rochester and Jane, they walk to the church. Jane notes a pair of strangers reading the headstones in the churchyard cemetery. As Jane and Rochester enter the church, the two strangers are also present. When the priest asks if anyone objects to the ceremony, one of the strangers answers, The marriage cannot go on. I declare the existence of an impediment. The stranger explains that Rochester already married. His wife is a Creole woman whom Rochester wed 15 years earlier in Jamaica. 
He is a solicitor from London, like a lawyer, and he introduces himself as Mr. Briggs. He produces a signed letter from Richard Mason affirming that Rochester is married to Mason's sister, Bertha. Richard Mason himself steps forward to corroborate the story. After a moment of inarticulate fury, Rochester admits that his wife is alive and that no one in the community knows of his wife because she is mad, and he keeps her locked away under the care of Grace Poole. But he promises them all Jane is completely ignorant of Bertha's existence. He orders the crowd to come to Thornfield to see her. At Thornfield, the group climbs to the third story, and Rochester points out the room where Bertha had bitten her brother. And then he lifts a tapestry to uncover a second door. Inside this hidden room is Bertha Mason, under the care of Grace Poole. I love that. That's another bit that seems like a cliche now, but now, the whole the, group goes, <laughs> all of you, follow me. And, and, and the they mad, all... <laughs> the mad woman in the attic. Oh, well, that's it, yeah. That becomes a, a trope or a meme I don't know what you guys call it these days. Oh, right. <laughs> When Bertha attempts to strangle Rochester, Jane leaves the room with Mason and Briggs, who tells her that he learned of her intent to marry via a letter from Jane's uncle, John Eyre, stay with us, sent to Mr. Mason. <laughs> it turns out that the two men are acquaintances, and Mason has stopped in Madeira on his way back to Jamaica when John received Jane's letter. Approaching death, John asked Mason to hurry to England, save his niece. And after falling asleep for a short while, Jane awakes to the realization that she must leave Thornfield. When she steps out of her room, she finds Rochester waiting in a chair on the threshold. To Rochester's assurance that he never meant to wound her, and to his pleas of forgiveness, Jane is silent. Although she confides to the reader that she has forgiven him on the spot. And then Rochester offers her a new proposal. Let's leave England and go to the south of France, where we can live together as husband and wife. Jane refuses, explaining that no matter how Rochester chooses to view the situation, she will never be more than a mistress to him while Bertha is still alive. Rochester realizes he must explain why he does not consider himself married, and he launches into the story of his past. Anthony? And I love this, because this really talks about sort of that old money, generational wealth, like this is an exemplary situation. Especially in England, where it all goes to the oldest son, and you know, there's that primogenitor. And yeah, anyway, exactly. So you see that you know, unwilling to divide his property, Rochester's father left his entire estate to his other son, the older one, Rowland, and sent Rochester to Jamaica to marry Bertha Mason, who was beautiful and due to inherit a massive fortune. So he's like, you go make money that way. <laughs> we'll do this. Shortly after the wedding, Rochester learned that Bertha's mother was not, as he had been led to believe, dead, but mad and living in an insane asylum. And Bertha's younger brother is described as a, quote, mute idiot. Bertha soon revealed herself to be prone to violent outbreaks of temper and unhealthy indulgences. And these excesses only hasten the approach. What has been lurking on her horizon already? Absolute madness. And by this time, Rochester's father and brother had died. So Rochester found himself all alone with a maniacal wife and a huge fortune. He considered killing himself, but returned to England instead. He resolved to place Bertha at Thornfield Hall, quote, in safety and comfort to shelter her degradation with secrecy and leave her. Jane feels torn now, right? Uh, she wonders how she could ever find another man who values her the way Rochester does and whether, after a life of loneliness and neglect, she should leave the first man who has ever loved her. It's seemingly a tough decision, isn't it, Anthony? Her conscience tells her that she will respect herself all the more if she bears her suffering alone and does what she believes to be right. 
So she makes that tough decision. She tells Rochester that she must go. She kisses his cheek, prays aloud for God to bless him as she departs, grabs her purse, sneaks down the stair. She's out of there. All right, let's take a break here. And when we come back, we'll once again follow Jane Eyre in her travels and her travails. We'll be right back. Mad Magazine. Advertising mascots. B-movie posters. And cartoons. Oh yeah, can't forget cartoons. If you get the funky connection that ties these pop culture gems together, you'll dig two designers walk into a bar. See, we're a couple of creatively curious pals living between the bookends of grand museums and dive bars. Hey, you know the place. The sweet spot where highbrow and lowbrow become drinking buddies. So join our barroom chats as we talk influential work and uncover stories of how the familiar became iconic. Think behind the music for the stuff we love. Check out our website at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com. And listen wherever you get your podcasts or visit evergreenpodcasts.com. And we're back. All right, guys, when we took our break, Jane had left Thornfield Hall, her first true home, but also a place of disappointment. I might say a place of roses, but with the attendant thorns. But if things have been hard for Jane before, they get desperate now. Jane quickly exhausts her meager money supply and is forced to sleep outdoors. She spends much of the night in prayer, and the following day she begs for food or a job in the nearby town. No one helps her except for one farmer who's willing to give her a slice of bread dipped in milk. After another long day and night, Jane sees a light shining from across the moors. I just like that that imagery is great. Following it, she comes to a house. Through the window, Jane sees and hears two young women studying German while their servant knits. From their conversation, Jane learns that the servant is named Hannah and that the graceful young women are Diana and Mary. The three women are waiting for someone named St. John, which they pronounce Sinjin. Jane knocks on the door, but Hannah refuses to let her in. And collapsing on the doorway, on the doorstep in anguish and weakness, Jane cries, quote, I can but die, and I believe in God. Let me try to wait his will in silence. And a voice answers, All men must die, but are not condemned to meet a lingering and premature doom such as yours would be if you perished here of want. The voice belonged to Sinjin, who brings Jane into his house. He is the brother of Diana and Mary, and the three siblings give Jane food and shelter. They ask her some questions, and she gives them a false name, Jane Elliot. And after she's taken in by the river's siblings, Jane spends uh, about three days recuperating in bed. And then Hannah tells her the story of Mr. Rivers, the sibling's father, who lost most of the family fortune in a bad business deal. It's because of that that Diana and Mary are now forced to work as governesses. They're only at Marsh End, or as they call it, Morehouse, now because their father died just three weeks ago. Jane relates some of her own story and admits that Jane Elliot is not her real name. Sinjin promises to find her a job. Sinjin tells his sisters that their Uncle John has died and left them with nothing because all of his money went to another unknown relative. Jane learns that it was Uncle John who led Mr. Rivers into his disastrous business deal. At Morton School, the wealthy heiress Rosamund Oliver provides Jane with a cottage in which to live. Jane believes that Rosamund and Sinjin are in love, but he explains that he refuses to allow worldly affection to interfere with his holy duties. The flirtatious, silly, and shallow Rosamund would make a terrible wife for a missionary. 
Suddenly, Sinjin notices something on the edge of one of Jane's papers and tears off a tiny piece. Jane's not certain why, but with a peculiar look on his face, he hurries from the room. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Soon, Sinjin appears at her door in Morton. Appearing troubled, he tells Jane the story of an orphan girl who became the governess at Thornfield Hall, then disappeared after nearly marrying Edward Rochester. This runaway governess's name was Jane Eyre. Until this point, Jane has been cautious not to reveal her past and has given the Rivers a false name. Thus, although it is clear that Sinjin suspects her of being this woman about whom he speaks, she does not immediately identify herself. He says that he has received a letter from a solicitor, you know, like a lawyer, named Mr. Briggs, intimating that it is extremely important that this Jane Eyre be found. Jane is only interested in whether Mr. Briggs has sent news of Rochester, but Sinjin says that Rochester's well-being is not an issue. Jane Eyre must be found because her uncle, John Eyre, has died, leaving her the vast fortune of 20,000 pounds. Anthony, I think 20,000 pounds today would be almost 3 million pounds. Hmm. Of course, Jane reveals herself to be Jane Eyre, knowing that Sinjin has pretty much already guessed that. She asks him how he knew. He shows her the scrap of paper he tore from her drawing the previous day. It is her signature. She then asks why Mr. Briggs would have sent him a letter about her at all. Sinjin explains that, though he did not realize it before, he is her cousin. Her Uncle John was his Uncle John, and his name is St. John Eyre Rivers. Jane is overjoyed to have found a family at long last, and she decides to divide her inheritance between her cousins and herself evenly, so that each of them will receive 5,000 pounds. You know, I've never really been a fan of these happy coincidences, but they were prevalent as early English writers perfected the concept of plotting. Okay, let me guess, they live happily ever after? (laughs) Well... As time goes by, Sinjin exerts a greater and greater influence on Jane. His power over her is almost uncanny. This leaves Jane feeling empty, cold, and sad. She follows his wishes. At last, he asks her to go to India with him to be a missionary and, you guessed it, to be his wife. Well, she's got all that money. Well, it's true, (laughs) but every guy she ends up working for after a while is like, you know what, let's get married. (laughs) (laughs) She agrees to go to India as a missionary, but says that she will not be his wife because they are not in love. And Sinjin harshly insists that she marry him. During the following week, Sinjin continues to pray for Jane, and she is overcome with awe at his power of speech and his influence. She almost feels compelled to marry him, but at that moment, she hears what she thinks is Rochester's voice, calling her name as if from a great distance. Jane believes that something fateful has occurred, and Sinjin's spell over her is broken. Jane contemplates her supernatural experience of the previous night, wondering whether it was really Rochester's voice that she heard calling to her, and whether Rochester might actually be in trouble. And at this point in her life, she's learned to trust those premonitions. So she boards a coach to Thornfield. She travels to the manor, anxious to see Rochester and reflecting on the ways in which her life has changed in the single year since she has left. Once hopeless, alone, and impoverished, Jane now has friends, family, and a fortune. She hurries to the house after her coach arrives and is shocked to find Thornfield Hall a charred ruin. She goes to an inn called, of course, the Rochester Arms, to learn what has happened. Here, she learns that Bertha Mason set the house ablaze several months earlier. Rochester saved his servants and tried to save his wife, 
but she flung herself from the roof as the fire raged around her. In the fire, Rochester lost a hand and went blind. He's now taken up residence in a house called Ferndean, located deep in the forest with John and Mary, two of his elderly servants. So Jane goes to Ferndean. From a distance, she sees Rochester, but his face is desperate and disconsolate. Rochester turns inside, and Jane approaches the house. She knocks, and Mary answers the door. Once she's inside, Jane carries a tray to Rochester, who is unable to see her, of course. When he realizes that Jane is in the room with him, he thinks she must be a ghost or or a spirit speaking to him. When he catches her hand, he takes her in his arms, and she promises never to leave him. The next morning, they walk through the woods, and Jane tells Rochester about her experiences during the previous year. She has to assure him that she is not in love with St. John. He asks her again to marry him, and she says yes. They are now free from the specter of Bertha Mason. Rochester tells Jane that a few nights earlier, in a moment of desperation, he called out her name and thought he heard her answer. But she does not wish to upset him or excite him in his fragile condition, so she doesn't tell him about her hearing his voice at Morehouse. And so Jane and Rochester marry, with no witnesses other than the parson and the church clerk. Jane writes to her cousins with the news. St. John never acknowledges what has happened, but Mary and Diana write back with their good wishes. Jane visits Adele at her school and finds her unhappy. Remembering her own childhood experiences, Jane moves Adele to a more congenial school, and Adele grows up to be a very pleasant, mild-mannered young woman. Jane writes that she's narrating this story after 10 years of marriage to Rochester which she describes as inexpressibly blissful. Which, you know, but she, she just, tries to express it anyway. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, after, after this life that she's had, I think that's, she deserves that. Absolutely. They live as equals, and she helps him to cope with his blindness. And after two years, Rochester begins to regain his sight in one eye. And when their first child, a boy, is born, Rochester is able to see the baby. Jane continues in her diary that Diana and Mary have both found husbands and that St. John went to India as he had planned. She notes that in his last letter, St. John claims to have had a premonition of his approaching death. Jane does not believe that she will hear from St. John again, but she does not grieve for him, stating that he has fulfilled his promise and done God's work. She closes her book with a quote from his letter in which he begs the Lord Jesus to come for him quickly. And with the closing of her book comes the ending of our novel, Jane Eyre. All right, Katie, Anthony, now let's take a final break and then head into our last segment where I'd like to ask the two of you to share a moment or a character or a quote that we haven't had a chance to talk about yet. Right now, you're listening to Novel Conversations. I'm Frank Lavallo. We'll be right back. Bonjour. This is Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. I'm Andrew Pryor, and every week I bring you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food, whether they're here in France like me or from around the world. Each week, we dive into a specific topic, be it a French dish, an ingredient, or a French cuisine cooking technique. My guests are all about French food, so come join me on Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. Bon app. Welcome back. You're listening to Novel Conversations, and I'm joined by our Novel Conversations readers, Katie Smith and Anthony Moramus. Katie, do you have something to share with us? 
Of course I do. Well, as Charlotte Bronte is one of the first well-known female novelists. Indeed. With Jane Austen, yep. Mm -hmm. So I am particularly drawn to the way that she presents characters, and in particular, the relationship between men and women. And I would be hard-pressed not to mention the way that Sinjin almost pushes marriage on her and her reaction towards it. Uh, I think the descriptions are, are just so good and written in a voice that as a woman myself it's so particular and it's exactly how it feels when something like that is happening. And at this time for Charlotte Bronte that would have been a new voice of, if I can use the word feminism or of, of a woman's uh, uh, feelings. Right. Uh, I don't, you know, I, I might use the word proto too often but I think we can call Jane Eyre and Charlotte Bronte herself proto-feminists. They would not have identified themselves that way. They wouldn't have had the vocabulary right. to, ident to identify themselves that way. But they were taking steps forward for women. And I think we also mentioned for the less well-off, the, the, mm. the, the mm -hmm. people that were not aristocrats. Right. Uh, I, I found both of her. Uh, I found both of those uh, to be fascinating for for such an early novel. Yes. The uh, piece about you know. Being a woman in that time, like I, I love any movie or book when you think about the time that it's in. Because at first you think, oh, I've heard this. Oh, wait a minute. This is written in 1840s. And so just thinking about how you learn from other historical sort of novels that, oh, getting, getting a husband was the greatest thing you could hope for. Oh, you'd be so lucky to have that taken care of for you. But twice she goes, no. No, she's just her own person. And I think that's bold. And it still reads, comes off as like em empowering to just go mm -hmm. like she does what she thinks is best. She trusts her gut and it's gotten her this far. It's gotten her pretty far. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anthony, do you have something? I got hooked from the beginning with this book with just sort of her attitude and her, again, the boldness to use that word. But the most affecting part for me came uh, when Helen died and just her way, her very clear eyed way of describing death and realizing as a 10 year old what is there, which is really interesting because her parents had already passed, but you know, she was so young, she didn't have that like, oh, I had them, now I don't. She just knows that that's a thing. And so at one point, even uh, he's, she's asking about Helen, how's she doing? And says, so she'll not be here long. And the phrase uttered in my hearing yesterday would have only conveyed the notion that she was about to be removed from Northumberland to her own home. I should not have suspected that it meant she was dying. And I just thought that was, you know, of course, as a kid, you know, oh, she won't be here long. Oh, where's she going? No, no, I'm saying <laughs> that she's dying and her having that realization imprint. And then as it goes on, her last conversation with Helen, I just found it so touching because earlier, Helen, when she was scolded and disciplined, and Jane wanted to stand up for her, but Helen said, oh, no, 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 it's okay. It's not that bad. I know how to deal with it. I have faith in God. It's going to be taken care of. She brings that same sort of pious attitude to dying. To the death, right? Yeah. She even just says, it's part of life. It's just my time. Hey, I'm not going to suffer anymore. And it's just really fascinating and touching. And in just that last moment that they have together where she crawls in bed with her, which by the way, Helen died from the same thing that her parents died. And she is not scared to not only be in the room against everybody's advice, she lays with her. She dies of consumption. I believe we have her parents dying of typhus. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. It is a typhus outbreak, but Helen's in her own room because she right. doesn't have the same thing. She's got something else. That's right. 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 Okay. So, but that. but you know, <laughs> what we would think of today is she crawls into bed with a consumptive, mm -hmm. and that's you know not the healthiest thing to be to right. be doing for yourself. You're, you're more likely to catch that than the typhus. Right. I, I would think. At, at that point. Sure. All right, guys, I want to focus on, on Preacher Brocklehurst or Mr. Mm. Brocklehurst. Uh, we mentioned the word hypocritical. He's hypocritical. There's one great scene where he's in the uh, auditorium with all the girls, and he notices a couple of girls are 
curling their hair. <laughs> Although Miss Temple says, well, no, Joan's hair is curly because it's naturally curly. Preacher Brocklehurst will have none of that, and he orders the girls to have their curls cut off. Right at that moment, Mr. Brocklehurst's family enters, the wife and two daughters, and as they're described by Charlotte Bronte of being in this, be these beautiful dresses and their jewels and their finery, it, we're also told that all their hair is adorned with French curls. Mm -hmm. And I just found that such oh. a hypocritical moment where he's demanding, he's cutting girls' hair off, mm -hmm. and yet his daughters, his wife, are in the exact same, uh, are wearing the exact same fashion. That broke my heart as a curly-headed girl. <laughs> <laughs> it breaks my heart that I have no-headed girl, mm. no-headed <laughs> hair. Anyway, all right. Guys, I think with that, let's, uh, let's stop now and, and end our conversation about the novel, Jane Eyre. I want to thank you both once again for coming in and having this conversation with me. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Frank. Thanks for listening to Novel Conversations. If you're enjoying the show, please give us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find us on Instagram at Novel Conversations. Follow us to stay up to date on upcoming episodes and in anything else we've got in the works. I want to give special thanks to our readers today, Elizabeth Flood and Anthony Moramus. Our sound designer and producer is Noah Fouts, and Grace Sienna Longfellow is our audio engineer. Our executive producers are Bridget Coyne and Joan Andrews. I'm Frank Lavallo. Thank you for listening. I hope you soon find yourself in a novel conversation all your own. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And, and we're, we're the, the Professional, professional Book, Book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy, happy reading. reading! This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.